Reading this evening is from Luke 23, verses 1 through 5. Luke 23, verses 1 through 5. So let us give our attention to this holy word of God. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching them throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And thus we end the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let us join together again in prayer. Our Father, once more, we thank you for your holy word. We know that we can depend on everything it teaches, that it is pure truth. And we thank you that it teaches us of your son and the suffering he was willing to go through in his humiliation for our salvation. Help us to concentrate on this text and to learn what you would have us to learn, to experience your presence, have communion with you, and be led to repent of our sins and keep on trusting in your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Are you a perfectionist? Or do you know a perfectionist? Perfectionists like to have things just so, everything in its place, everything in order. We can even become compulsive about it. The perfectionist doesn't take his or her mistakes very well. They bother him a great deal. The perfectionist may procrastinate when he or she has something to do for fear of failure because perfectionists want to do everything perfectly. It's hard to be a perfectionist because even the perfectionist is not perfect. And even the perfectionist like all of us, needs to repent of his sin and put his trust in Christ, not himself. I find no fault in this man, Pilate said. No fault in Jesus. In spite of all this uproar, in spite of all these accusations against them, and they keep coming even in this passage as we studied this morning, 
no charges against him. He's the only human, perfect human ever to live, the God-man, Jesus Christ. But in contrast to him, we are sinful people. We make many mistakes. We sin in such a way that we can't even count them all. In such a way that we're not even aware of them all. Sometimes someone will point it out to us in a kind way, even, sometimes in a kind way, and we think, really? I was doing that? And yet we know. We know what we're capable of as human beings. Well, maybe sometimes we don't. Maybe sometimes we don't know. But the message of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ, through his saving work, has made provision for us and saves us from our sins, even though we're not perfect. And the message of the gospel goes on to tell us that we can become better people by the work of the Word and Spirit in our hearts. We are being sanctified, and one day we will be glorified. And there are a lot of glorious things that the Scripture tells us about the next life, but one of those is that maybe we don't think about so much that we will be sinless. Now, you know, we think of our bodies, especially older people like myself, we think of our bodies, and here's a pain, and there's a pain, and so on and so forth. I wish I had my body, my 20-year-old body, or something like that. And one day, you'll have a body better than you had when you're 20. But more than that, you will be sinless by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So we will become righteous. Right now believers are accepted as righteous based on the righteousness of Christ. But one day we will be righteous. That's the hope of the gospel. The faultless Son of God can take sinful men and women and boys and girls and make them spotless children of God. And for that, we're grateful. So tonight, no fault in him, no fault in Jesus. First, the false accusations against him. Secondly, the kingship of Jesus. Thirdly, the sinlessness of Jesus. False accusations against him, the kingship of Jesus, and the sinlessness of Jesus. First, the false accusations in verses 1, 2, and 5. In verse 1, the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. The Sanhedrin, the council, the highest court of the Jews, before which he had been, now take him to Pilate. And Pilate is the Roman governor of this area of the empire. And it's his decision that will stand. 
It's his decision to either condemn Jesus or declare him not guilty. So that's where the buck stops. And this multitude, the Sanhedrin, brought him before Pilate. And then their accusations. In verse 2, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation. Well, we all know that if there's anything Jesus did not do, it's perverting the nation. But that was this accusation, turning people against the Roman government. Today we would say a domestic terrorist. That accusation was against him. But the Lord Jesus Christ encouraged his followers to obey the government. All of Scripture encourages us to obey the government, except when the government tries to force us to do something that's wrong. The general rule is to obey. Exceptions are when the government goes against God, and we always have to side with God. Well, they accused him of subverting the government. Then in verse 2, they accused him of forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Well, as a matter of fact, he encouraged his disciples to pay taxes. You can see how these charges were lies. And then in verse 2, they accused Christ of being a king. But he was not a political threat to the Roman emperor. He was a spiritual king. And on later in verse 5, after Pilate intervenes, they come back and charge him again with teaching throughout the region in verse 5, uh, which he did. But he taught good things. He taught holy things. They were implying that he was teaching something wrong. And so their charges were trumped up. But also, I miss this in verse 5, he stirs up the people. And he did. He stirred up the people to do good, <laughs> to follow God's ways. But they were implying stirring up people to revolt, which was untrue. So they accused Jesus. And why did they do this? Why were the Jewish leaders doing this. I mean, the majority of people at that time would not, I'm opining now, may not have wanted to crucify Jesus had they not been led by their leaders into that position. The common people heard him gladly. But why were these leaders so against Jesus, so that they stirred up the crowds, turning most of them against the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is in a parallel passage in Matthew 27, 18. Matthew 27, 18 says, For he, Pilate, knew that because of envy they delivered him. It was because of envy. They saw what Jesus was doing. They saw that crowds gathered around him. 
I mean, even at that, the crowds weren't that large. He only had 120 followers as we go to the book of Acts. But yet they were envious. People spoke of his teaching, saw his miracles, and marveled. Even those who did not become believers in Jesus for salvation, many of them marveled at his miracles. And so it was because of envy. Envy is a is a soul-harming sin. And it's so available to us, and it's so present before our eyes. You know, I see my neighbor's cars. Some of them have a nicer car than I do. It's so easy for me to say, why does this guy have that car and I have what I have? I would say I see neighbors' houses and envy, but they all look the same. I live in a townhouse, so that's not a temptation. But there are so many things that are temptations. I see someone has a nicer Bible than I have. Boy, do I like Bibles. You know? I hear this preacher, and I'm astounded at the gifts God has given him and how fluent he is and how he loves the Lord and brings the word so accurately and so deep into the heart of other people and it's so easy for me to be tempted to envy him a brother who is doing the work of the Lord or I see another father and he's doing such a wonderful job with his children and I see a grandfather, and I'm tempted to think, do I measure up to that? It's not a bad question to ask, but am I envious? The enemies of Jesus saw what he was doing, and they were envious, so they brought these charges against him. He was falsely accused. There's no fault in Jesus. Secondly, is the kingship of Jesus. Jesus is a sinless king. He is the only sinless king known to man. So in verse 3, Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Did you notice what Pilate did? Uh, go back to this accusation in verse 2, perverting the nation. Did Pilate say, are you perverting the nation? No. Next accusation. Forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Are you, Jesus, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar? No, he didn't ask that, did he? Accusation. He calls himself Christ, which actually he did not admit in their questioning. He calls himself Christ, a king. Did he ask Jesus if he were the Christ? No. Pilate says, I'm not fooling with you guys. That's nonsense. 
or he stirs up the people. Pilate didn't ask him that, this accusation in verse 5. Teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Are you doing this, Jesus? No, he didn't ask him that. But he did ask him this one at the end of verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, yes, it is as you say. I am the king of the Jews. A frank admission. He's the king. Our government is not a monarchy. We've heard of monarchies. We know our, our mother country is a monarchy. We know that they have a king or a queen, as the case may be. But we're a republic, and we have a president and a Supreme Court, and we have a governing uh, lawmaking body, two lawmaking bodies that form one. We have three branches to our government, and we don't have a king. And it's hard for us to understand how the Brits go wild over their king or queen. Experientially, it's hard for us to understand that because we live in this republic. But we do know that we have laws and standards, and we do know that we're expected to obey them. We do know that this is true and this is real. Although in the present time, some of our laws are being enforced very stringently on some people and not at all on others, that's not because of our system, but those who run it. Nevertheless, we know that under God, we're supposed to obey the laws, with the exceptions I mentioned. Jesus is a king. He said, yes, I'm king of the Jews. And he is king of his church. And he's king of the Gentiles. And he's king of the universe. But he said, yes, I'm king of the Jews. And not the kind they expected, not the political guy. He will come to earth. He will set up his kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, he will. But now he's reigning invisibly, spiritually in heaven at the right hand of God. He is king. And all the rulers and presidents, heads of nations on the earth, may not acknowledge it, but they are under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that they will answer to him. And he can turn their decisions and their actions into whatever way he pleases, regardless of whether they acknowledge it or not. He reigns now spiritually. As king of his church, he brings us into his kingdom and makes us citizens by his spirit. He rules over us by his word and spirit. He gives us elders and ministers to rule over us. He gives us his word his laws, which he expects us to obey. And again, in a broader sense, he's king of the universe, and every person, every person lives under his kingship. 
and one day will answer for that. To him, every person will answer. Every person who has ever lived or who ever lived will live or who lives now. And we, believers, are subject to King Jesus. We have surrendered to him. The Holy Spirit has moved us to say, I can't control myself. I can't run my life the way it should be run. I'm a sinner and I need salvation. I need guidance. I need the help of the Lord Jesus Christ, my King, 24 hours a day. We made that commitment. We verbally made that commitment. We are citizens of his kingdom. But we tend to rebel. We still have this tendency. In two days, we celebrate independence. And we call it Independence Day. And we are proud of our heritage. We are proud of our forefathers who had the Boston Tea Party, and that wasn't a fun gathering to drink tea. But they said... No taxation without representation. And they established this nation. And we are a bunch of independent-minded, independent-thinking Americans. It's part of our tradition and history. And as you well know, independence can be carried too far. Independence is important. In one sense of the term, I'm getting older or I'm old now, and when I have that wellness checkup, you have questions like, can you take care of yourself? And if we live long enough, the point comes in life when we can't take care of ourselves. But if we're not at that position in life, we tend to think, I can. Not only including keeping the body clean and brushing the teeth and cleaning our clothes and wearing nice clothes and so on. No, not only that, but in our minds, decisions and actions. We can easily slip into, oh, it's all up to me, but it's not all up to us. We know what this world would be like if we all do, did exactly whatsoever we pleased. And I, I like uh, driving a vehicle as an example. Because driving a vehicle is like life. How you drive shows a lot about who you are. <laughs> so, if we get in our vehicles as we go home tonight, and we ignore all the laws and the stop signs and the traffic lights and the speed limits, what's going to happen? People will die. A lot more people than normally die in traffic accidents, traffic wrecks. If we're driving through the grass and driving on the sidewalk and over the curb, it's chaos, it's disaster. Independence taken that far it's too much. It's wrong. 
But sometimes we slip into that and live that way. And it's disastrous. We don't like to be told what to do. But we have a king, and he is a good king. He is a kind king. He knows what's best for us. And he gives us his perfect law in his word. And as his subjects, we want to obey that. The men who were opposing Jesus in this passage had no intention of submitting to him. But nevertheless, he was their king, and they were going to answer to him also. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, But for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6.20 The Lord Jesus bought us at the price of his blood. I know we're complaining a lot these days, myself included, about inflation. How the prices have just, I mean, since COVID, there's just no holds barred. Prices are high, but none come close to the price Christ paid for his people. You were bought. You belong to him. I belong to him. If you want to get down to the bottom line, we're his property. I know when I buy something, I expect to use it. And I don't expect it to get up and walk away and turn its back on me. I expect to use it for my purposes. That's why I bought it. And we belong to the Lord. We have a king. We owe our deepest allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And how can your obedience improve? What areas are you deficient in obeying the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you thought about that lately? It shouldn't be hard to discover, <laughs> being the people that we are. Are you looking at that, and are you asking God to help you? Turn that around. Are you asking the Lord, Lord, I want to work on this. This part of my submission to you is lacking, and I know it, and I pray your spirit will change me. Secondly, the kingship of Jesus, the faultless king. Thirdly, the very sinlessness of Jesus. In verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Find no fault in him. Little did he know. Jesus was better than even Pilate declared right here. What Pilate meant was, 
You bring all these accusations against him, and none of them are capital offenses. He's innocent of all these charges. He's more than that. He is totally sinless. The devil challenged Jesus. Can you imagine what it would have been like in the desert on that day when God appointed his son to do battle with the devil? You've been out here fasting 40 days. Command these stones to become bread. You can do it. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If you just fall down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Well, I'm going to take you, Jesus, up to the highest point of the temple. Yes, that was a miracle. I can't explain it. It was a miracle. So up here, Jesus, throw yourself down. God has said his angels will keep charge over you. You won't even dash your foot against a stone. Quoting Scripture. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Just using Scripture is not enough. Using it with the right interpretation is. He won that battle. But you know what? In Luke 4.13, in, in Luke's account of this, in Luke 4.13, at the end of all the temptations, Satan went away, quote, until an opportune time. Luke 4.13. The devil was just waiting to tempt him again. And again, and again, and again. And the devil has many demons that are available and will be available near you and me. Until an opportune time. What is our record in dealing with temptation? Now in baseball, I used to be a really big baseball fan. In baseball, there's a batter and a pitcher and some other guys. But... Let's concentrate on the batter and the pitcher. And the pitcher throws the ball, and the batter tries to hit it. So we have professional baseball players, right? So how successful do you think batters are in baseball? How successful are they at hitting, getting a hit, hitting it where nobody catches it and taking a base for a second, third, or a home run? How successful do you think batters are against pitchers? Well, let me put it this way. If someone gets a hit 30% of the time, 
he's considered a good, a really good hitter. It's not a high success rate. But I'm not making fun of those batters. If I were up there, I'd be scared to death. 96 mile an hour fastball coming at you. Or all these tricks that they do and the ball goes this way and that. I wouldn't have 0.01% success. But isn't it interesting that people get paid multi-million dollars a year to hit the ball 30% of the time? It's difficult. And so is fighting temptation. But we have something that well, I wanted to say those batters, but some of those batters don't have, some of them do. And that is, we belong to the Lord. And we have his strength, and we have his spirit, and we have his word to resist those temptations. The Savior did. He was perfect. And he had to be perfect because the sacrifice that God requires to make up for our sins and to cover our sins is a perfect sacrifice. Like the Passover lamb in the Old Testament period, that lamb had to be without spot, without blemish. That was a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so 1 Peter 1.19 says, We are redeemed, quote, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1.19. He was perfect. And we use this term perfect quite frequently. I was scheduling a medical appointment this past week, and we came to a date in a time, and we agreed upon it, and the medical worker said, perfect. That just means I can be there at the time there's an opening. Maybe we use, maybe we use perfect a little bit too much because perfection is without any flaw, without any fault, at all. I had some teachers who, if you turned in a paper and you answered all the questions correctly, but there was a comma out of place or a misspelled word, you couldn't get a hundred. You know why? Even though it was discouraging to us students, it was not a perfect paper. That's perfection. That's how difficult perfection is. And if you make a purchase from a house to a car to a pair of shoelaces, if they don't work right, you take them right back. Well, you don't take a house back, but you ask for your money back. Because you paid full price for it, and it's supposed to be right. 
our Lord Jesus Christ is perfect, and he had to be in order to satisfy the Father's justice. There was fault in the men who accused him. There was fault in Pilate who would condemn him. There's even fault in his followers, but there's no fault in Jesus Christ. Pilate admitted it out loud, but he would later condemn him to die for his own personal protection to avoid a riot and to maintain his position as governor. But he didn't trust in Jesus. And those accusers would never have done that. Sinless Jesus lived a perfect life so that sinners like we are could be saved. And not only saved from our sins, not only saved from hell, but saved completely, all the way, totally, till one day we are glorified. That's how much Jesus is doing for you and me. Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8.29, God has predestined his people to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's almost too good to be true. We have to take it by faith. Because we know ourselves. But thank God, he has the power, the power to do it. And I close with these words from 1 John 3, verse 2. 1 John 3, 2. Behold, now we are children of God, and it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for your plan for your people, for your willingness to not spare your son, but give him up for us, that we might be transformed into his own image. Thank you. Let us live thankfully in our actions, our words, and our attitude. We ask it through our great King, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen. Amen.